Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I've got a thing, Mark, that is not quite a stackwaddy game, but it's on its way to a stackwaddy <laughs> game. It's got elements of a stackwaddy game, and I thought you might like it. Okay, so you bear with me. This was um, prompted by me seeing a poster the other day in town for the Bob Marley biopic One Love. And I don't know if you've seen those posters, but the the tagline, the kind of sell line for this film is, is uh, first he changed music, then he changed the world. Oh, this is good. So is it guess the film from the tagline? Absolutely. First he changed so the music. When just when he's always safe to go back in the water and in space. Uh, yeah, go on. First he changed music. No, he didn't. Then he changed the world. No, he didn't do that either. <laughs> you know, and then nobody admired Bob Marley more than me. It was just ridiculous. Anyway, anyway, these are these are taglines that we used to market uh, major musical biopics. And what you, Mark Ellen, have to do is to identify the films. Okay, Go on. try me. The only thing more extraordinary than their music is his story. The only thing more extraordinary than their music is his story. What's that film, Mark? You don't know, do you? Oh, my Lord, I just... It's Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, Oh, God. The next one. The ceremony is about to begin. That's clearly The Doors. The Doors. It must be The Doors, mustn't it? Yeah. Absolutely correct. Next one. Based on a true fantasy. Based on a true fantasy. Rocket Man? You're absolutely okay, correct. You're good, doing very good. well. You've got two out of three. Okay, next one. Love is a burning thing. Love is a burning thing. What's that film, Mark? What musical biopic is that film? It selling? must be Johnny Cash and Reese Witherspoon, it's, I'm guessing. It's Walk the Line. Ring of Fire. They, they, it's called Walk, Walk the Line. Line. It's called Walk yeah. the Line. Okay, yeah. Johnny Cash. Okay, next one. A girl who knew how to cook. How to dress, how to keep house, how to act like a lady. 
a girl. Well, that's you. either the coal miner's daughter. It is correct. Oh, it is. Okay, okay, got, good. You're, you're doing I haven't very done well. badly. You've got all but one. This okay. is really good. All but yeah. one. You've got two more to go. The music you love forever, the man you'll never forget. The music you love forever, the man you'll never forget. What's that film? Oh, no. See, loads of people listening to this. It's more just, contemporary uh, than Ray Charles, isn't it? Or, well, who is it? Go on. Loads of people listening to this going, sir, 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 <laughs> I've got it. It's the Buddy Holly story. Oh, of it's course. The Buddy, the Buddy of course Holly it story. is. And finally, and finally, the man, the music, the madness, the murder, the motion picture. Isn't that good? The man, the music, the madness, the murder, the motion picture. What's that musical biopic, Mark Allen? God, is it Phil Spector? I mean, no, it's uh, not. No? It's, it's Amadeus. Oh, God. Oh, oh well. That's really good. So it's Those good, were brilliant. They're all good, aren't they? They're excellent. They're so, absolutely excellent. So we're recording this on Friday afternoon, and, and I was just doing a little um, whiz around the internet, and... Um, I found that released this week, 50 years ago, Mark, 50 yeah. years ago this week, is the long-playing record that I think you could say is the most evergreen, the least dated, the most playable long-playing pop record of our time. I'm going to be I'm, – I'm prepared to say that. It's the most evergreen, the most dated, the most playable, long-playing record of our time. came out the same week as Todd Rundgren's Todd and Radio Oh, City, I know what it is. Uh, big Star. Go on, what I, is it? I got, go, I'm, it's Pretzel Logic. It is Pretzel Logic. Oh, my great. God, of course. It is Pretzel it's, Logic. That's a brilliant choice. <laughs> it I is. played it not long ago, and it's still the leanest, most beautiful. It also has, this is a fact, it has one of the best sides of an album, the most complete and perfect sides of an album ever recorded, possibly as good as the first side of the second band album, which I think is Ricky Don't Lose That Number, uh, I've got Night hear by Night. Uh, let me think now. Any major uh, Barrytown, do. Any major do. Will tell any major do. Barrytown and East St. Louis Toodaloo. To, absolutely. And the second side is Parker's Band, Through With Buzz, Pretzel Logic, With A Gun, Charlie Freak, Monkey In Your Soul. And I was thinking to myself, now, I, I I've lived with this record for 50 years, and I know how playable it is, and I know how frequently I kind of reach for it. But then it struck me that it's it's kind of, uh, it's it doesn't never falls out of fashion, partly because of the way it looks, the way it looks from the outside, and the title, Pretzel Logic. It's so bizarre. It couldn't, it's not dated at all, is it? You know, not you know, people look back on other records, maybe of that era, I don't know, Hotel California or whatever, and they think, oh, that's very 70s. You know, that's a bit, that's a bit dated. Pretzel logic can not never date. Remotely. Because it was always strange at the time. You know, the reviews at the time say it's really great. Enemies record of the year, apparently, for 1974, which I didn't realize. Um, and the reviews at the time said it's impeccably played, but we don't understand a word of it. We don't know what it's about at all. And and actually, 50 years later, most people don't know what it's about either. Which is part but of the it, attraction. It's part of the attraction. Completely mysterious. And yeah. it's, it's also that as the times grow 
more cynical, and I think the Times are more cynical. Yeah. Pretzel logic is just waiting there for the Times, isn't it? It kind of got their head. Yeah, it did. You know, so it was born in the era of Watergate, and it sounds just the same in the era of Vladimir Putin, doesn't it, really? It does. It, it, it's kind of... The, the, there's the, there's nothing you can surprise it with, you know what I mean? The, it's seen it's seen every kind of human failing and examples of moral turpitude and carries on going, doesn't it? Really, and you know, so that's my theory. It's the most evergreen, the least dated, the most playable, long playing pot record of our time. Came out fifty years ago, this very week. Steely Dan's pretzel logic, and I will fight anybody who says different. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So news uh, this week that uh, the the Beatles mill carries (laughs) grinds on forever, quite rightly, and I couldn't be more thrilled. Sam Mendes is making not one or two or three, but four biopics of the Beatles to be simultaneously released in 2027. And uh, very funny little, uh, I got the news from the, from the BBC, which said uh, their best known, the Beatles' best known hits include Eight Days a Week, Come Together and Twist and Shout. Oh, <laughs> and you're thinking, wow. what work experience person is writing this? The idea you haven't even had to say the Beatles are seems astonishing. But anyway, but if you buy into with biopics, if you buy into the idea that these are the people, it works. You know, backbeat, I bought into it. Um, Nowhere Boy, Rocket Man, the various ones that, 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 I mean, I don't know if you need persuading in this, the idea of biopics, but I, I, I mean, is that, is that something, are you looking forward to this? Well, no, I, I've, I'm, I've seen millions of biopics and, uh, and quite like them, but I can't help thinking that, that kind of depicting the Beatles throws up very particular challenges, I suppose. But, um, but I suppose it will, clearly, it will be designed for people, you know, the age of our children and younger, who don't have the strange kind of spooky familiarity we have with the Beatles, having grown up with them, you know, <laughs> that uh, that we kind of recognise them like we recognise members of our own family. That's true. Every and, idiosyncrasy and, about the way they speak <laughs> and look, we have noted, so it'll be quite hard to convince us. We've lived with them for all that time, you know, and so who are they going to get to depict any of these people? Well, yeah. the sensible thing to be to do would be to get unknowns. I think anybody who comes freighted with any kind of luggage of being reasonably familiar will be very hard to get over, I think. I suppose so. Um, so what are they going to be called, these films? Just John, Paul, George and Ringo? Is that the idea? I've, I've no idea. And are I've they, they no going idea. to go in that order? <laughs> That's good. What order would they go? Because yeah, they, they, they have, well... That'd they be can't. the age at which they joined oh, the group. Or the, the first, they would say it would have to be John Paul George. No, they'll do, it the, they'll do it the other way around. That they will end with John. They, they, no, they'll end, oh, no, they'll end with George because he's the youngest. So they'll go Ringo, John, Paul, George. Is that the, is that the age? That's know? the age. That's true. That's, that's the age. That's, that's the age. Okay. How well, but I think, I think that the interesting stuff is... Pre-Beatles. Oh, right. I think that's the rich the rich area that they have to mine. 
which is the the four of them were so different. Their, their backgrounds actually quite different, weren't they? Ringo, a really, kind of real poverty, really. Very oh, Ill, definitely. Only very child, definitely. parents separated very young. Couldn't, couldn't read or write, really. <laughs> couldn't read or write. Two very long, very difficult hospital spells, yeah, one of them yeah. for a year. Lazarus, wasn't that what his mates at school called him? <laughs> Lazarus, that he'd risen from the dead. So that's interesting. George, you know, big family life. You're the only one who had the mum, the dad, the yeah. three b- 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 siblings, you know, him learning all that stuff about George forming Cab Calloway's mum, big character in the Beatles story, he used to answer all the fan mails. Paul, a notch above, wasn't he, kind of financially, if you like. Then there's the death of his mum, the influence of his dad and his aunts and uncles. And then there's John, the Freddie and Julia kind of tug of love that he was forced to choose between going with one. That's been largely discredited. It'll be interesting to see, being as the Beatles, Apple are involved with this and all the estates Mm. are involved. It'll be interesting Mm. to see how much they play fast and loose with what we absolutely know, because that's a really interesting story. But, um, you know, the complications of Julia's wildlife and him living with Aunt Mimi and actually living a slightly more middle class and or quite a lot more middle class. Uh, so you think it would, and, you think it would be more interesting before a before a note of music has been played? Really, I think that's the, I think that's the bit that hasn't oh, okay. been. No, but also the other bit, which I think is really interesting, actually, is after the Beatles. I mean, clearly, probably none of these things will will be in the film because I don't know where you end if you go on to after the Beatles. I don't know what, but the the idea that all four of them had a very very difficult time adjusting to life without each other is fascinating. We're only getting to to really understand this now. I think it's quite interesting. I, I was writing a thing recently about. Um, Musical kind of museums, <laughs> rock museums, yeah, you know, destinations of rock heritage and so forth. And um, and I was thinking that you've got uh, it, there are very few kind of homes that you can go and see, but two of them are, are John and Paul's, can't you? You know, both their homes are. Have, is that case? Yeah, they're both yeah. taken, aren't they, by the National Trust? Uh, in Liverpool. And then the other one is Elvis Presley's Graceland, obviously. And when you go to Graceland, you go to visit a place that was such as none of us have ever been in before. It was kind of a mad fantasy of what happens to somebody when they've got a ludicrous amount of money and no idea what to do about it at all. You know, So it's like, it's like visiting Mars, going to Graceland. Whereas if you go to John and Paul's place in Liverpool, what you're seeing is 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 a past which many people shared in at the time. You know what I mean? That their that their kitchens were like the kitchens that loads of other people yeah. grew up in. You know, and I'm always interested in this thing of Bob Dylan. Well, Bob Dylan visited these places, didn't he? In, in disguise, and he had his kind of hoodie well, jacket. No, he, so he, he, he got a he got a you know. He turned up, and and the guy was running it was was a Dylan fan, and I think he got a personal tour round while everybody else waited outside. Everybody else was quite happy to wait outside while he yeah. went through, and was shown the place. But Dylan has done this. Turned up at Neil Young's house in yeah, in, he has yeah in wherever in Canada, and um, and it is always fascinated by going back to see what kind of place people grew up in and that's a really interesting thing you know um whereas graceland is not where anybody grew up at all you know it's, it's where the thing that dylan thought was extraordinary about 
Lennon's home, I think, was how cold it might have been, didn't it? Yeah. It was the fact that I don't think there was any central heating. He was thinking, trying to imagine how freezing cold those winters must have been. But it's the idea that you can go in the bedroom of, you know, the the young Paul McCartney or anybody like that went in, and you can look out the window and see what they saw when they were 13 years old. That's somehow more instructive than seeing what they saw when they were 30 years old and usually successful, you know what I mean? It is. That, that's the interesting contrast, you know, which, with with your Beatles theory. You know. It is. Yeah, I would be interested. Yes, I, I I'd be, be interested in that. Also, I'd be interested in the idea of seeing it from their point of view because every Beatles film tends to be about the communal experience of what yeah, the yeah. four Beatles went through together. Yeah. You know, eight days a week or whatever. You know, and just something said, even get get back. And uh, but the idea that you, there are moments in the Beatles story where I, I think it's one where I think uh, doesn't it? George goes round to Ringo's house and said, "Look, I know all three of you want me out. I know all three of you are against me." He said, "I thought you." And Ringo says, "I thought you were against me." And it was just because that idea that they just couldn't see it from each other's point of view. Yeah. So yeah. that'll be revealing, I think. Yeah. Now it's funny this business of of. Um having an actor depict people who are really famous, because I was thinking of this this week when I was um, I was watching once again with great delight, because it's still on the um, BBC iPlayer, and if you've never seen it, go and see it. A very English scandal, which is the three-part Stephen Frears film about the Jeremy Thorpe, Scandal, starring Hugh Grant as Jeremy Thorpe, who is absolutely brilliant. It's, I saw it recently. The whole thing, I rewatched it. It's fantastic. And um, but the thing about it that struck me is, you know, there's Hugh Grant comes into view, you know, skipping down the stairs in the in the in the Houses of Parliament to meet people and. Um, and you, you're just enthralled with his kind of charisma as an actor and his ability to embody this person. And then you think to yourself, did Jeremy Thorpe really look like that? <laughs> no, he probably didn't. You know, and, and then we grew up very familiar with Jeremy Thorpe. Jeremy Thorpe was the most famous and popular politician of the 1960s and 70s, oddly enough. He was he was always people's favourite politician, regardless of their their personal loyalties. And Jeremy Thorpe, if you think about it, looked a bit like an Edwardian Undertaker. He had a kind of his resting voice, the face was very gloomy, you know, gloomy. There was something something clammy about him. Actually, yes, true. Hugh Grant hasn't got that at all. No. You know, so Hugh Grant, it's a brilliant performance. But what he does is he superimposes Hugh Grant's charisma on Jeremy Thorpe's charisma, and it kind of works. You know, yeah. so yeah. that's probably what you have to do with the Beatles. Yeah, is you can't afford to have kind of anonymous, self-effacing actors who are just trying to play it down. <laughs> You've got to have people who are going to play it up, really. energize it, energize yeah. it. Um, the thing that struck me about that film was that, admittedly, this is not particularly a political scandal, but it's the, the, the biggest scandal involving a politician in our lifetimes. 
I would say. Yeah, one of them. And, and, you know, this is a story involving illegal sex, keeping (laughs) a lover in his flat, uh, hit men, contract killers, two fake marriages, blackmail letters, a plot to murder his boyfriend and drop him down a tin mine, or to have him murdered, to shot in Florida and fed to alligators. I mean, I I (laughs) really cannot imagine that there's ever going to be a story that outranks that involving a politician... I tell you, this week I've been also reading Michael Block's brilliant biography of Jeremy, Jeremy Thorpe, which came out a few years ago, and I've only just got around to reading it. <laughs> and you get the whole account, the whole thing. And the one thing you can't help thinking as you're reading it is, I'm not surprised he wanted to kill him. <laughs> and oh, yeah. Because just... I'm really not surprised. Doesn't make it right. Of course yeah. it doesn't. But boy, I'm not surprised, you know, because the insistence with, with which this person just kept coming back and coming back. Coming back and ringing coming. up his new wife and suddenly telling her who it is completely just derails her, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and I'm not surprised, nothing, I'm not surprised that it happened because. Thorpe at one point used to boast, didn't he? he used to boast to friends that he'd seduced TV cameramen. Oh, yeah. He boasted that he'd, he'd seduced footmen at Buckingham Palace receptions, uh, even policemen on duty at the House of Commons. So there was that element of risk and danger that he oh, was. Uh, Maybe oh, like Brian Epstein, Brian, Brian Epstein on the, the Beatles' you know first trip to America went off and had some kind of adventure in Central Park. He they did. just couldn't, couldn't resist it. You know. <laughs> couldn't resist it. So, you know, if, if anybody's, in, you know, p- perfectly equipped to, uh, to play the part of somebody so reckless on the screen, it's Hugh Grant. It's Hugh Gra- really? It is Hugh Grant. <laughs> it's Hugh Grant. We should also mention the other, uh, the other great moment in, in the uh, Thorpe story, that Thorpe, with his second wife, goes to the wedding of a member of the Global Village Trust. <laughs> Isn't that absolutely so amazing? So the story there is his second wife was Lady Harwood, who was the was the wife of Lord Harwood, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And Lord Harwood, who I think was the first cousin of the Queen and sixth in line to the throne absolutely, at one point. Absolutely. And I remember as a kid going to see the Global Village Trucking Company and thinking the keyboard player is in line with the throne. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. So he went to the Global Village Trucking Company's commune and witnessed this when Jeremy Thorpe, then I suppose the leader of the Liberal Party, on this commune in where it was, Suffolk, I think, you know, watching this guy get married, age 19, and his sheepskin jerking. I was, reading, I was reading, reading Michael Block's book, and it comes to that paragraph, and, and I'm just so excited. He doesn't mention the Global Village Trucking Company, but I know who he's talking about. So I took a picture of the paragraph, and I sent it to you, didn't I? Yeah, I know. So, yeah. I love it. We ought to have a version of that book written by Pete Frame, you know, so it's fully musically annotated all the way through. Absolutely extraordinary tale. Extraordinary tale. Extraordinary three-part film, as we say, still on the BBC iPlayer. If you've never seen it, you know, fill your boots. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Well, you've been following, as I have, the story about um, the Stolen Eagles lyrics which I shall very briefly recap. As far as I can see, what happened was that Ed Sanders, the same Ed Sanders who was in the Fugs, that's that's extraordinary itself. Yeah, absolutely. Ed Sanders was commissioned in, I think, the late 70s to write uh, a book about the Eagles, about the Eagles story. And in researching that book, 
um, and interviewing them, they told him the full chapter and verse, nuts and bolts of the extent to which they'd fallen out, which eventually led to the hell freezing over tour, et cetera, et cetera. And they then looked at a proof of this thing and didn't like it and wouldn't let him publish it. And he was then very aggrieved and eventually shot this thing around and got a deal somewhere else. I don't know, they obviously fell out with him. But very early on, they gave him five, uh, well, they were actually written on legal pads. They were pads of lyrics, including the lyrics to um, to Hotel California. And this, then he then sold these to a rare books collector called Glenn Horovich for $50,000. Uh, and he then sent them Did on he? to... Did yeah, he sell them? Did he sell yeah, them? He sold, yeah, I think so. Fifty thousand dollars. He then sent them, uh, sold them on to this guy Glenn Horowitz, to an, a memorabilia seller called Edward Kosinski and a former Rock and Roll Hall of Fame curator, Craig Inciardi. I think it was. Now, then the the issue started, which is that they would not reveal, as far as I can see, where these things had come from. They claimed they found them backstage somewhere. Was that right? Well, I think nobody quite is clear about how they came into the possession of Ed Sanders in the first place, really, although he undoubtedly acquired them in the process of researching this book. They were lyrics and also uh, lots of what you might call working out. So so it wasn't just the lyrics of Hotel California, it was, uh, you know, Loads of earlier stabs at it with crossings out uh, going bollocks, not that, but yeah. You know. But the interesting thing is that that they obviously gave those to him at the time, not realizing maybe the whole the whole market for 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 lyrics for, for original handwritten lyrics just hadn't taken off. Had no, it, it had because you'd think that would be an insane thing to have done to give them to him. Actually, it's only latterly that people realise the value of these things. Yeah. You know, it's only really in the last 10 years that these things have started going insane, you know, that people will pay mad sums of money for yeah. anything connected with anybody. And so, you know, this is this is ending up in court. Well, Ed, uh, Ed Sanders' defence is that he could have gone with all the material that they'd given him and sold it for a lot of money to Rolling Stone or the New Yorker or whatever. So he says he was acting with great reserve. I don't think it would have got much but, money out of Rolling Stone or the New Yorker. I mean, it's, it's a very odd market, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really? is. I mean, who would who would buy those kind of things? I don't know, but there, there undoubtedly would be people who would. And, of course, if it's got all the crossings out and the workings out, that kind of makes it more authentic, doesn't it? It's not like... You know, you remember, you remember a few years ago, Don McLean found the lyrics for to American Pie. Didn't yeah, he? magically, he just suddenly found them and yeah. got a minute, got a million dollars from them, and then magically, a few weeks later, found the lyrics for Vincent. I think, um, you know, his, his subsequent hit. Um, well, I remember we did a podcast with Lloyd Cole about two years ago, and remember, did, Lloyd yeah. Cole just, if you want him to write out, to handwrite the lyrics. For, I'm not pretending that these are the original versions with the crossings out and stuff. If he wants to, if you want to simply handwrite the lyrics to your favourite song, he will do it for a modest Money. sum. Which for I think a is modest really, yeah, really absolutely, it's perfectly yeah, legitimate. That. Nothing, nothing wrong with that at all. It's you know, it's it's an enhanced autograph, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, no, no trouble with that at all. So, you know, we shall follow this court case with interest. And uh, Irving Atzoff, who's the Eagles manager for, since back in the day, was giving evidence in court about them. 
the other day when the, the, the judge said, um, are you the man that was referred to as the devil? Something like that. Satan, wasn't it? Satan. They called you Satan. <laughs> Satan. We know he's Satan, but he's our Satan. He's our Satan. He's our Satan, which is very... It seemed quite very, affectionate, didn't it? It's very Don Henley. Yeah. <laughs> and I was intrigued to, to note, um, I was reminded in reading the about the court case, that uh, Take It Easy, um, which Jackson Brown wrote the beginnings of, and then Glenn Fry, I think, wrote the, the ending of, Jackson Brown gets all the royalties for Take It Easy. And I'm thinking to myself, that's quite good, isn't it? And then I thought, no, it's on the Eagles' greatest hits, which was, last time I looked, the biggest selling album in the history of the United States. Of all time. <laughs> Why does he get all the, all the royalties? Well, I don't know. They obviously just decided it was cleaner. Because he, he'd written most of the song, but. Glenn Fry came in and helped finish it or something. That is I, I think Glenn, I think he and Glenn Fry and James Brown were sharing an apartment at the time. And you know, imagine that sharing an apartment. If you're a songwriter and you're sharing an apartment with the young Jackson Brown, so you're queuing up for the piano you know, behind a guy who's He's kind of knocking out classic after classic, you know. Surrounded by an enormous number of very attractive women. Probably. Very attractive <laughs> young women. Absolutely. Yeah. I was listening to and Jackson Brown's For Every Man only this morning. And because I listened to it on Spotify, what was a wonderful experience turned into a bit of a wah, wah disappointment. Now, doesn't For Every Man start with his version of Take It Easy? I think it does. Which Jackson Brown fans will back me up in this. Via the magic of, of mixing back in the day, the first track, Take It Easy, used to segue into the second track. Is it Our Lady of the Well? I can't remember. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Anyway. And there was an absolutely magical moment of cross-fading between the two. Once you get the CD, you it's can't do that anymore. No. And it's, it's coitus interruptus. Yes. Because you're, you're thinking, oh, look, this is fading away. But no, it's about to, it's about to cross-fade into this thing. And then the bugger doesn't. Yeah. And you feel really short-changed. And so you go upstairs and you play the record. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. So they do say that um, with the, the success of Texas Hold'em, Beyonce has become the first black woman to top America's country music chart. Have you, have you caught up with this, Mark? Yeah, I have. Before, I mean, yeah. Have you heard? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. 
It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, if you haven't heard this record, go and, go and listen to it. I mean, it's, it's good record. It's about as country as I am, really. Because, you know, what are the country elements of this? Well, it's kind of satirically country, isn't it? It's got a, it's got a, it's got a sampled banjo all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, again, banjo. I don't think banjo exists on most country records nowadays at all, does it? But it doesn't. Beyonce's idea of a country record, and um, and it's called Texas Hold'em, which of course is a, is a variant of uh, of the game of poker, but. It struck me it's really out of place in the country chart for this reason. And I went and listened to the country chart this morning to check. It's the only one of the top 10 country records in America this week that doesn't have what all absolutely every last country record has, which is this, Mark, a story. Absolutely every country record. They always tell a story. Has a story. It, the first verse. A domestic, it's out. a domestic story. Well, it, yeah, it takes you to a place, it introduces you to yeah. a person, and then it places that person in a dilemma, and then it attempts to resolve that dilemma. All country records from Hank Williams right up to the present day to Morgan Wallen or whatever, are the same in that respect. Texas Hold'em is a hip-hop record. Hip-hop records are not like that at all. They're absolutely not. They're not stories. They're not linear in that way. They're yeah. personality vehicles. They're, look at me, look at what I am. Wouldn't you like to be like me? Yeah. Let's go dancing. And I'm not, I'm not in any way disparaging either of these things. But those are the traditions, you know? And so... And so, so the issue about it not being played on some country stations well, is, is possibly to do with, I don't know. I well, mean, I mean, yeah, there, there, was, there was some country stations that went on playing it, and then the, the, this being 2024... There was such a Twitter accusation, outcry, wasn't there? Accusation of racism or whatever. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, it, it is, it's not wildly different from, you know, would, would you know, an R&B station play a Dolly Parton record? No, they yeah. probably wouldn't, you know. The, you know America has kind of very well-grooved, you know, ways of approaching that kind of thing, haven't they, you know? 
um, you know, they 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 play this kind of record at this kind of station, and they play this kind of record on the other kind of station, and um, and then they think of different euphemisms for it. You know, whether it's race records or R and B or urban, yeah. urban contemporary, yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Um, but I do think it's interesting. I mean, I think it's a it's a really good record. It's a really good record. But it's not a country record, not near a million years. But I do think it's interesting to re- to remind yourself of the fact that everything else in, in popular music changed absolutely all over the place. But country records still tell stories in a way that hardly any other records do at all. You know, indie records don't tell stories, do they? They don't. Not in a million years. Heavy metal records don't tell stories. You know... I don't, I'm not even sure the Taylor Swift records really. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I, she obviously was and went through a period where she was very definitely a, a country artist. Um, but, you know, American country records still tell stories. That's a very solid tradition, isn't it? Are you following the story of the uh, of the Billy Joel uh, single too? Oh, I mean, yes. So Billy Joel, who is, I don't think, put out a record for, I mean, when was the last well, one? Well, he hasn't, written, he hasn't written a new one since the 90s. He hasn't written a new song. He pretty much said, I've done it all, you know what I mean? And nobody's interested in my new ones. So I, he, he, did, he, he, um, he composed a piece of instrumental music, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, that he put out, but... Um, but no, he hasn't done anything new until this one. What's it called, Mark? I can't remember the title. It's called, um, can I remember? No, I don't think I can. <laughs> oh, right. I think you and I both thought it sounded a bit like his, his version of My Way. Well, really. Actually, yeah, I can't it's remember very, what the name of the song is now. It's very much about, you know, did I fail in my life? Yeah. You know, did I, didn't I not do the things I should have done, you know? Did I let down, you know, any, any of the people in my life? And With him, an amazing but, video in which he's... Yeah, him which being he's, a very successful rock star. I think your brain would say, yes, you definitely did let down people in your life because everybody does, you know. And successful yeah. rock stars do it more than anybody else. But yes, the video, via the miracle of AI, you know, artificial ignorance, as you and I call it, <laughs> um, is... Um, is uh, by the miracle of, of artificial ignorance, you can see the song being sung by the younger Billy Joel at all. Well, Billy Joel at various stages of his very life, different, different stages of his life, which I can't work out whether those things are a, a bold new frontier or just a bit of a, a cul-de-sac, really, where you think, you know, in, in, in a week's time, we'll all have forgotten about them. You know what I mean? Although it's like, you know, the, the Peter Jackson video that went with Now and Then, you know, showing the Beatles at all different stages. Do you desperately want to see that again? There's no reason to go back and see it again, is there? But then again, that's to do with not wanting necessarily to hear, hear Now and Then again. Well, that's no. my feeling about those things. It's just it's a, for one moment, for one short period of time, they're really exciting. And then they're, they're kind of gone. What, but would you like to go and see, would you like to see right now the Beatles doing A Hard Day's Night or whatever, or the Beatles? Okay. Would you like to see the Beatles in that goods van on the train singing I Should Have Known Better in 1964? 
Well, let me answer for you, Mark. Which is my, yes, my theory is that's the first ever video. Go on, yes, go on. Would you like to see that again? Yes, you yes. would. Yes, you would. Would you like to see the incredibly expensive, really clever video for now and then? No interest whatsoever. Not remotely. Uh, why is that? <laughs> or free as a bird. You remember the free as a bird one where they threw absolutely everything at it? <laughs> every single reference to every single song they could get in. It was really good. But it's, uh, you know, the shine went off it very quickly. The Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since 2007. And we're joined by our producer, Magic Alex. Producer. Very nice to have you on board. Producer. <laughs> Is that dignifying it? Oh, gosh, dear, dear. Um, carry on, carry on, carry on. Anyway, Magic's here. Um, we've done various things recently, which two of which we should plug, actually, because they're very good. One is uh, uh, an interview with, uh, with Jar Wobble. He's lively, isn't he? Fantastic. He's lively and he's characterful, characterful and really funny and a master of different accents. And I thought he was really interesting. I think he is one of those very rare examples for somebody whose career kind of fell through the floor at one point, involving booze and drugs, I think. And he, he kind of fell through the bottom and, and started working, didn't he, at London Underground as a, a proper job, yeah. Tube, yeah. tube driver and, and ticket collector, a proper job, which he thoroughly enjoyed as well as I could see. And uh, there's a wonderful bit where uh, I think where he, he he got on a tannoy once. He said and and and, and shouted, "I used to be somebody!" To the uh, stunned and uh, confused crowd going past him. And we also did a a, a podcast with uh, with the, uh, the uh, Richard Coles. He once with the, the Comedy Arts, who's now in fact touring with uh, just doing a spoken word tour. Who is also brilliant, really, really brilliant, and so has fantastic powers of observation. Very, very witty, very funny, and. Uh, very, it reminded me a bit of, of Neil Tennant actually. His ability to just tell stories about being on top of the pops and the marbled denim and the mullets of Le- Legs and Co. And uh, you know, he's sitting between various famous people watching um, watching Kylie Minogue on stage. And, and a marvelous story about about being uh, playing to a, a load of Spanish delinquents who are armed with pea shooters and uh, and catapults. <laughs> it's just fantastic. I thought. You know, the and also talked about how the eighties was the golden age of pop music. We talked a bit about that, which said we should expand upon at some stage because he was right. I think. Do you? The, the great thing about both those guests is what makes them doubly interesting is the fact that they haven't just been pop stars. Yeah. yeah. It's the fact that that uh, it, Jar Wobble, or John, as we call him, um, you know, worked on the London Underground, and Richard Coles was obviously many years of vicar, is it's the stuff you want to ask them about, isn't it? You yeah, it really I mean? is. Because, you know, pop stars' lives... In many ways, they're a bit dull compared yeah. to having been a vicar or yeah. worked on the London Underground. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Because we all we're all curious about those kind of things. Who would you rather meet? You know, it's like people will say they talk about who's your ideal dinner party. <laughs> I don't know if you have any answers to this, Alex. You know, people will say, "Oh, I'd like to have William Shakespeare, Mahatma Gandhi, and you know, I don't know." Hugh Grant, Michael Palin, Victoria Wood. And I think, oh my God, no, you don't really want that. And do you do you want a table full of egos all all trying to be noticed? Or would you rather have somebody who'd worked on the London Underground or somebody who'd been a vicar? I would rather the latter myself. Because you can ask these people questions and they're going to tell you things that you're not going to know otherwise. Well, do you remember you and I worked for a while with the the great Danny Kelly? 
And yeah. Danny Kelly had worked on the London Underground before he was well, the editor of the NME. Do well, he worked on the railways, wasn't he? The railways, the railways. I, I, I thought railways. he worked at Victoria Station or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and, and he used to, at, at, at publishing conferences, he would get up and tell stories about life on the railways, which were infinitely more exciting yeah. than people being on the road with stiff little fingers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what do you think, Alex? You kind of know how every pop star lives their life, don't you? Because there, there is a certain, I think, formula to to how a pop star lives on and off the stage. Whereas you don't know an awful lot about London Underground drivers, for example, because they don't get written about. So there's something very definite to discover there. And I think the pro- it's, it's that prospect of discovering something new, a new kind of facet of life that you haven't been privy to before that's that's really exciting. So, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And you're bound to discover something about the, the, about human nature, actually, about your 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 interface with 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 the public every day. You're going to learn something. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the quirks of humanity. Yeah, I've just been finished. I finished reading this book um, called Diary of a Bookseller, and it's about this guy who um, he bought the um, the Wigtown Bookshop about 20 years ago and it's just him grumbling about his customers essentially for 300 pages but it's absolutely fantastic because it just kind of digs right in to the minutiae of what makes humans really weird and interesting um anybody's job is interesting absolutely anybody's job is interesting i i genuinely believe that you know so I, i meet people i don't go to dinner parties but in the days when i did you know, you'd be sitting next to somebody and you say, well, and what do you do? And they go, it's not very interesting, really. And it's always interesting, yeah. whatever it is. You know, because you've, you've, never, you've never dealt with it before. Um, so, Alex, will you be going to um, the Liam Gallagher uh, four-day festival in Malta? This is good, isn't it? Uh, so, let me just uh, let Liam Gallagher and friends have a Malta weekender. Four days in Malta in September. And this is going to include host club nights, pool parties and boat parties. And I'm saying I can just see half of Manchester there in Man City bucket hats, don't you think? <laughs> and I can see a lot of Stella being drunk, a lot of football being watched on big screens. And it's I think there'll almost certainly be a, be a uh, bonehead Arthur's lookalike contest but anyway Poss- possibly the highest volume of coats in the sun in the world i'd wager <laughs> yes um, that's true i've already made tentative plans with a mccartney friend of mine actually yeah uh, <laughs> of, course, of course um it sounds simultaneously awesome and terrible and but i just, i feel like i do need to go for at least part of it um but it's, it, it feels kind kind of weird as well i mean why malta seems like it's not very well. It doesn't seem like the obvious choice at all, does it? No, but it's probably where they could get. No, you know, probably, yeah, Malta. Right. I don't know how much you know of of wartime history, you know, but Malta during the Second World War was was essentially presented with a special medal, wasn't it, Mark? To um, to record its resistance to um, to German bombing because it was a it was a huge, the very important strategic point in the Mediterranean, hmm. and it so, was. It played a big part in the war, actually. A big part in the war, yeah. And so you know, it it knows what it is to suffer cruel and unusual punishment. So the arrival, <laughs> the arrival of fifty thousand simian creatures, simian you know, creatures, wearing, as Mark says, bucket hats, and, and you know, yeah. waving bottles of Stella at each other. <laughs> Uh, you know, and uh, and wondering, you know, 
wondering when Jake Bug is going to be on or whatever. We'll be, we'll be, you know, like water off a duck's back to the Maltese. This is a quick side note. It's kind of a little bit off topic, but I was in Malta in November and went to the pub where Oliver Reed spent his last day. Um, <laughs> and uh, lovely, tiny little place. <laughs> they sell merch. They sell T-shirts with the list of what he drank that day <laughs> emblazoned on the front. Which I thought was really, really odd. I didn't buy one, uh, but Alex, you missed a trick there. Badly. That's a good shirt. I think that, that's you very should have bought that, and we could have offered that as a prize, You're right? In well, our well, Friday please. night quizzes, I'll, I'll have to get one when I go. I'll have to get one when I go see LG and Chums. <laughs> yeah, they'll probably sell out to LG and to the fans <laughs> yeah. of LG. Yeah. Is so that, that a new thing though? Because that that you know that whole idea of 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 you go on rock and roll sea cruises and there's well, the band, your favourite band are there playing. Here's every the night. thing: I've done a little bit of research into this, and it's not entirely new. No, I mean I think what Liam's doing is slightly new because it's it's in a holiday destination on land, and you know, short of Benidorm and your you know your 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 warm climate festivals, it's. I mean, I can't think of another. Another thing like it that's curated by an artist. Um, however, there have been ver- various rock cruises happening over the past sort of 10, 15 years. Um, there's the Monsters of Rock cruise, uh, which sets sails every every year. And uh, they have, I think on this year's bill, Joe Satriani, The Darkness, Ace from Kiss. Um, so it's it's quite a big thing. You, you had the Weezer cruise, Um in 2012 and 2014, where they essentially, um, well, they put on a load of bands that they were their friends and they liked, like Dinosaur Jr. And they uh, they included loads of Weezer-based activities uh, that you could indulge yourself in on said cruise, such as uh, a Weezer photo session, a Weezer quiz. You could get your vows renewed by a member of Weezer. Um, wow. a Weezer, really? Yeah, a, a Weezer Q and A. Your marital vows. You could get your marital vows renewed by a genuine, bona fide, certified member of the popular beat combo Weezer. Which is uh, <laughs> that's a new. really good idea because you, you don't have to be licensed to do that. Alex, you could do that. You could do it. The next time you go out beetling on a cruise. You can say, is there anybody here who'd like to renew their vows in the presence of, you know, and, and the, the Beatles, in inverted commas, will sing you a yeah. song or something. You could do that. No I suppose trouble. I could, yeah. I could. <laughs> um, it's also uh, the, the punk world's got in on, on it as well. Flogging Molly have uh, got their Salty Dog Cruise, right. where they bring on a load of kind of, I suppose, Irish-centric punk bands to do their thing. Um, but I think the first one was... Um, it's called the 70,000 70, Tons of Metal, and it started in 2011. Um, and they have 60 bands on this cruise. Uh, and of course, what? yeah. Um, they all sell out of somewhere in Florida to somewhere in the Caribbean. That seems to be the constant. Um, but apparently, at first, the cruise company were really reluctant to do this because um, they were a bit worried about what the, what the clientele would be like, you know, because rock and roll had a certain reputation. Uh, but is <laughs> the funny thing was that the guests were so unexpectedly friendly and well-behaved that they decided to do it again. It's become a fixture, which reminded me of another um, thing, which isn't too far away. It's Rebellion Festival at the Winter Gardens in Blackpool, um, which isn't exactly a rock and roll holiday because it's in Blackpool. But, um, 
but I played there once and uh, they have it every year at the Winter Gardens, which is this big kind of well combination of venues up there. Um, and I've never seen so many falling down drunk people, falling down drunk, like proper grown-ups in a single space ever, I don't think. Sounds delightful. Yet all these people were intensely well-behaved and polite to each other. It was fascinating. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's it, it's been going on for a little while, I think, but uh, but not in the way that Liam Gallagher is doing it. And uh, I'll be there though. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink, and it's like being in the pub. And we are joined by Adrian Ainsworth, uh, whose birthday was recently our birthday guest this week, um, who has a, a question for the panel. But Adrian, uh, happy birthday! And how is this, how is it celebrated? Um, the real celebration. The birthday is actually today, but the real oh, celebration. Well the real celebration is on Sunday when um, we're taking my folks to the uh, the the heady high dining surroundings of the local Toby Carvery. Oh my um, God! <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so, you know, you can't um, knock my, it. Uh, yeah, uh, my mum had a fall recently, and um, she uh, she's not been out much. So we are slightly worried that that she'll be sort of very hyper and um, <laughs> you know take too many roast potatoes or something yeah. like that yeah yeah stop <laughs> I go I fancy a carvery there's nothing wrong with a carvery I no like no a... exactly exactly yeah. we, yeah. we don't go often enough I don't no think. absolutely Look, looking forward to it yes yeah, so, uh, do they sell off some black forest gatto at the end of the evening do you think I think so or, or the blue or nun just uh, insert pudding of your choice with custard <laughs> with custard <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah. Uh, Bernie Inns. Oh, it's all coming back. To you. Yeah, it's all coming. <laughs> oh, back. what joy! <laughs> anyway, so what, what's your? So you got a, you got a, you got a theory or a question? Far away. Well, kind of. I'd be very interested in your insights on this, and it's basically sweary band names. Ooh, cool. oh, okay, um, and I realised I realised this might be um, a symptom <laughs> of me sort of getting ever closer to the blanket on knee moving near the radiator <laughs> stage. All oh, right. Some of the stuff coming around in in my sort of you know the YouTube feed and playlists. Um, this band that I, I I think I'm very late to this, but called the Last Dinner Party. Yeah, oh, right, okay. And, yeah. and you know the, the, the chorus of one of their I think biggest songs has the F. Do I need to say the F word or can I? No, you can of, say the F word. Yeah, but they they've had to uh, change that, haven't they, for for the, for the radio version? Right. I believe I believe so because. You know, I, I mean, I'm I'm not particularly offended by swearing, but I'm fascinated as to when people choose to use it, and the idea of them putting, um, you know, the word "fuck" in their chorus, so you just hear the word over and over again, and after the first couple of times, you think, so, well, that's arresting, but then, you know, after a while, I sort of think I started sort of thinking, I I wonder why they've actually done this. You know, they they must have known they would have to record another version of the song, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Isn't that part and of that, why they've done it? I guess because so. on Jules Holland, I saw them on Jules Holland. Obviously, they did that version, did the sweary version. But you know, yeah. anything you hear on the radio is not that version. No, I know. But the, but the, it, the, the weird thing is, I don't know if you ever listened to Radio One Extra because uh, the F word is so you know threaded into hip hop music. It, yeah. it is, you know. It, it 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 is about as ubiquitous as the word love was in the songs of Bing Crosby. You know the yeah. fuck word, the fuck W. The as fuck we W. The fuck on Q magazine. Quite so. <laughs> it, it's woven into hip hop so much <laughs> mm. that 
if you listen to one extra, it sounds really odd because every few syllables, they the the, the sound drops out as they oh, as you hear the radio version of, yeah. of the latest hit by whoever it is. And you and it, you feel ill with that sound, you know. Yeah, yeah or if they or if they had to bleep it or something, you know, and it would just well, be like bleep, an bleeping would be kind of way. It's it's really yeah. odd. I, mm. uh, and I, I just think, what's the damn point yeah. of this at all? You know. Yeah. And I, I have no objection to the fuck W in. Well, I certainly have no objection to it in hip hop because it's kind of part of the music. It's an integral and it, part. And of it. It's musical. If it wasn't there, it wouldn't seem yeah. right. It's musical, you know. Whereas very often in kind of rock and roll, it sounds a bit showy. <laughs> I thought so. Well, what you see, because what this last, last dinner party record reminded me of was something that has absolutely baffled me for years. And this is, you know, where I'd appreciate a bit of, um, you know, your thoughts, which is, yeah, which is when they put, when bands, actually put the swear words in their names hence swearing oh, man names right so so for example um i mean I'm, i i made a brief list and if we oh, just stick to, if we go just on. stick to the f word then i you know i i am so sort of acquainted with fuck fucked up holy fuck fuck buttons and fuck the facts fuck and also, sh- and also shit buttons. disco yeah shit disco and and what and and i even um i mean i looked at the um the metal archives, you know, sort of, I mean, because metal obviously is a law to itself anyway, but there appear yeah. to be sort of something approaching 150 bands that have the word fuck in their name. Wow. And, you know, 40 odd with shit. And I was I, like, <laughs> for example, um, just, just uh, one that leapt out of me was Tempus Fuck It. <laughs> <laughs> and also um, a band called SHIT. As if they were slightly afraid their mum. Yes. Might yeah, stop. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not quite prepared to go the extra mile, you know. No, absolutely. Well, you, you know the Radio Four mm. have rules about this stuff, and so if you're doing know. if you're doing a, a, a speech program, a documentary, or whatever, Radio Four, they, they'll they'll say to you, "You're allowed two fucks," <laughs> and they they they, they 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 have these written down rules. You know that how many of these things you're at. That's true. The Graham Norton show is the same. They were talking about it on the show the other the other day that you're only it. allowed a certain number of fucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh. Which I suppose I can kind of see the point of. Now your bands, yeah. your bands who all have the the fuck W in their name. Um, yeah. How many of those bands would you say are what we might call serious groups? They want to have a career. They want to be around. <laughs> they want to go on tour. They want to play I, festivals. Would I would say, I would say very few. I mean, certainly on certainly on the metal side. I mean, they're right, definitely operating okay. under the radar. I mean, I, I the, the the band called Fucked Up happened to be one of my favourite bands. I mean, they're sort of a furiously prolific and interesting um, kind of like. I suppose they're they're sort of a hardcore punk band, but then they started doing concept albums, actual tunes, things like that. And um, I think they're a really interesting group. And I suppose this is maybe is why it's an issue that's quite close to my heart because I feel they're holding themselves. Yeah, well, back. this is you know, it. They could, yeah. be, they could be absolutely sort of massive. <laughs> and I sort of think. I, I always imagine these people when they're kind of like my age and there's children and possibly even grandchildren on the horizon and they say, you know, look, son, daughter, at what we achieved. And, you know, they call themselves, you know, arse curtains or something, you know, and they're saying, 
row of CDs or vinyl on the shelf that just have the word arse curtains on. <laughs> and, you know, it almost it almost doesn't matter how good the music is. No, it? Right. <laughs> but isn't, but isn't that the case? You know, I always used to feel that about the band The The, that I could never bring myself to to, yeah. to get around. When I did listen to them, they were actually really good, but that was a classic example of shooting yourself mm. in the foot, wasn't it? Nobody ever talks about them. Because you wouldn't, you're embarrassed by the name. Well, it's, I know. Uh, well, you even say the same thing about Prefab Sprout. Didn't Prefab you? Sprout's the best example of that. <laughs> they, had, they had, seriously, had they had a, a, a name with a little more dignity and a little bit more, a little more shape to it, that they would have just been in a different mm. league. I'm convinced. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's quite true. So I don't know if, um, I mean, I know David, you've talked in the past about bands who seem almost embarrassed to be in bands you know they sort of shrivel on stage and you know they 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 sort of you know why are they they don't even know why they're supposed to be there and i i wonder if a sort of self-destructive band name is is part of that well yeah there's kind of i can't understand it it's interesting isn't it the um i can't remember we we were talking about this if you look at the um if you look at the names of American R&B vocal groups of the 50s and 60s, they all had kind of names that hinted at magic and the the Temptations and, you know, Mm. the Miracles and the Supremes, and they were all kind of utopian names. (laughs) Then you get kind of indie. Yeah, yeah. and then Mm. you get indie names, which are the opposite. Indie names are basically, this is a joke that you won't get. Yeah, because <laughs> we are a joke that you won't get. Yeah. That's that's yeah. a little. You know, they're deliberately prosaic. Deliberately painted themselves cult. into a cor- into a corner or moose because yeah. we don't want people to like us that we haven't approved. You know, they 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 have to like us for the right reasons. You know, it's a very kind of. Yeah. It's a very... It's, it's a, a very, deliberate attempt to limit yourself. You're it, absolutely right. It's a very six-form idea, isn't it? And it excuses any idea of failure. Why weren't you more successful, Grandpa? How could I be more successful? You've got to ask curtains. Wasn't my idea, obviously. Yeah, just was, my, you know, our band name was, was Shit Shithead the bass player. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, look, oh, thanks, nice. Adrian. Thank you very much for, for airing that important <laughs> subject. It is. <laughs> Thank you for uh, treating it with the dignity it deserves. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, see you next uh, year. We'll see you next year. <laughs> yeah, next Tuesday. I was going to say. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.